Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Totally Whole, Blog Talk Radio, where I am your host, Dr. Rosemary Cook. And we are continuing our discussion around Black History Month, Daring to Dream. And tonight we have a very special guest, Mr. Terrence J. Artis. He's going to speak to us about his experiences as an attorney and just a little bit about how he rose above the odds and defied every statistic about African-American men. Before he comes on, I want to have us to listen to an inspirational song that relates to our topic tonight.
Amen. You are listening to Yolanda Adams. Never give up. Keep the dream alive. Before I bring on Mr. Artis, the scripture from Acts 2 and 17 says, In the last days I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh, on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And we also realize that the scripture reminds us that without a vision, the people perish. And on tonight, I want to talk about black men having visions and black men daring to dream. Throughout this month, I've had guest uh, speakers to talk to me about their experiences, and we've had several uh, outstanding women. But tonight, I want us to highlight our black men. Are our black men still dreaming? Have our black men given up hope? So we've talked about African Americans who have made contributions to our society throughout this month. We've talked about the the legacy of our foreparents. We talked about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of racial equality, of justice, of full participation of people of all color in society, a society where we will be judged by the content of our character rather than by the color of our skin. And we can say, yes, we've made some gains as a people, but we can also look at some of the setbacks. We can say that, yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt, racism still exists, but it's more covert and it's more systemic. We see institutional racism as we realize uh, inequality in education and in housing, and we look at the inequality in the police arrest rate of African-American men and people of color. I want to highlight a few statistics that I found. Tavis Smiley wrote a, a book called Too Important to Fail, and these are some statistics that, that he shares. This particular article was written by Tamika Thompson. Some excerpts from Tavis Smiley's book tell us that nationally, African-American male students in grades K through 12 were nearly two and a half times as likely to be suspended from school in 2000 as white students. Another statistic says that the 12th grade reading scores of African-American males were significantly lower than those for men and women across every other racial group. Then there's another article by Sophia Kirby where she talks a little bit about statistics of people of color in the criminal justice. 30% of people of color are imprisoned. I'm sorry, 30% of the United States 
are representative of people of color, but 60% of those are imprisoned. And the incarceration rates disproportionately impact men of color. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, one in three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. And according to the recent data by the Department of Education, African-American students are arrested far more often than their white classmates. And the studies show that people of color face disparities in wage trajectory, particularly following release from prison. So those are just a few of the statistics that are out there as relates to African-American men. But I want to raise the question tonight. Can our men still see visions? Can our old men still dream dreams? So I'm not trying to paint a grim picture on the future of African-American men, but want to inform the audience about what we are up against. And these stats are sobering. But we know that as a people, we rise, we overcome the odds, and we overcome the statistics. And if statistics had predicted my destiny, I wouldn't be where I am. Having been raised by a single-parent African-American woman, having grown up in poverty, yet able to be an entrepreneur, pastor, clergy, employer, and attain a Ph.D. But enough about me. I want to introduce Mr. Terrence J. Artis. He is a graduate of Baltimore School of Law and a graduate of Morgan State University. He is currently an assistant general counsel with the state of Maryland Commission on Civil Rights. And in this capacity, he is an administrative trial and appellate attorney litigating cases of unlawful discrimination and ensuring equal opportunity in employment, housing, and public accommodation. We're talking about history makers. Terrence won a significant fair housing case before the Court of Appeals, which is Maryland's highest court. This case established new law involving a reasonable accommodation under Maryland's Fair Housing Act. And if you want to look up the case, the name of the case is Board of Directors Cameron Grove Condominium 2 versus State of Maryland Commission on Human Relations. And the citation is 431MD.61-2013. But not only that, listeners, Prior to his position with the commission, Terrence was a staff attorney with the Maryland Disability Law Center, where he monitored and investigated reports of civil rights violations at state and private mental health facilities, and he currently maintains a small private practice of law involving landlord-tenant issues, contract review and drafting. He advises not-for-profit organizations and serves as a consultant to churches surrounding legal and tax concerns. Terrence is an entrepreneur with several real estate holdings. 
and his aim is to provide affordable housing for his tenants and the neighbors in which they reside. So let's welcome Mr. Artist to Totally Whole Radio. He's a good friend of mine, one of the smartest people I know, and a former co-worker. So I want to have Mr. Artist to kind of think about what we've already said in terms of African-American men. And then I want to ask him a more specific question. Welcome, Mr. Artist. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dr. Cook. My pleasure. So what do you have to say as it relates to some of the global statistics that I mentioned regarding African-American men uh, looking at the, the the stats and the odds that our men are up against. Yes. Uh, well, <clears throat> unfortunately, you know, you are correct. Um, from Philadelphia to, well, I guess, we'll, uh, to Baltimore, uh, from, you know, Philadelphia is near my hometown, originally of Coatesville, Pennsylvania. But from Philadelphia to Baltimore to Dallas, Texas, to Los Angeles, California, uh, it's unfortunate, but <clears throat> oftentimes it's true, that we have um, just too many of our African-American men who are incarcerated. And, you know, it's many reasons for that. I know we're not here for for that particular purpose of why, but it, it, it's true. And I was listening today, and it would said, said that we are incarcerate. Um, in terms of the United States, is the largest uh, country that incarcerates, you know, human beings uh, in the world. Uh, I think it was 2.5 or 2.9 million persons who are incarcerated. Uh, wow. And many of them are, are African-American men, which in the prime of their life, you know, they are behind, behind bars, and, and, and some of them are my own family members. Um, so... Again, it's true, and it's in my opinion, many of them are there for nonviolent uh, drug offenses, uh, and I just think that we could be spending the resources um, elsewhere in order to improve our families, our communities, uh, and the decision making of many people. So, <clears throat> um, I am blessed, as we'll talk about, that I did not end up a statistic in that in that fashion. But um, yeah. again, it's it's unfortunate, but 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 candid and true. Yes, it really is, and I, you know, I I know that our listeners can relate to the statistics that are up against us. And as you said, many uh, persons who are incarcerated or who find themselves, uh, you know, the last hired and first fired. Uh, are people that we know and very well could be us. So I know, Mr. Artist, that you are not from uh, Baltimore. You're from Pennsylvania, a town called Coatesville, and I'm not sure many people have heard of Coatesville. So can you tell us a little bit about your beginnings and, and how did you get to where you are today? I can imagine, you know, you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You had to overcome some odds to, to get to where you are today. Yes, and, and before I go mention that uh, 
Dr. Cook. I'm very proud of my little small town in in Pennsylvania. I just want to go back to your point about the incarceration rate. You know, not only is it is it um, uh, the numbers are are just startling of of the number of persons, African American men, who are incarcerated, but the the uh, side effect, the byproduct of the incarceration is that when many of them are released, uh, the incarceration continues to haunt them in employment and housing and other types of areas uh, of life uh, just impeding their progress. Uh, many persons, I mean, it was just recently changed here in Maryland, the legislature overrode the governor's veto, but many of those persons can vote. Um, and it just has a lifelong impact on persons being able to, after they've paid their debt to society, just being able to move forward like many other citizens uh, in this country who want to have a better life for themselves and their families. So, you know, in areas of employment, as I mentioned, areas of housing, the arrest record just continues to haunt these individuals, and it affects the recidivism. I mean, when many of them cannot find work, uh, they just tend to, some of them, uh, resort back to old behaviors and, again, all of us losing in the end for that. So just wanted to mention that. Um, yes, I am from Coatesville, Pennsylvania. Coatesville is a small town, uh, one-horse town, many would say, outside of Philadelphia uh, and between Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, and it is in Chester County, and the two oldest historically black colleges and universities are located also in Chester County with Coatesville, and that would be Lincoln University and Cheney University. Uh, and okay. my, yes, my hometown um, is very quaint, but it was um, um, settled uh, in terms of African Americans, many of them who were part of the great black migration from the South. Um, many of the African-Americans who um, were born and spent <clears throat> their their childhood years uh, in the Virginias and the North Carolinas and the South Carolinas, um, the data show, tells us that they often went to the eastern seaboard cities such as Washington, D.C., um, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, uh, the primary places. And so... My relatives originated from North Carolina, and therefore, you know, my parents um, <clears throat> were reared in Coatesville, and so that's where my rearing took place. Um, very good childhood. I uh, participated in all of the, the activities, I guess, that young men do. Um, took karate lessons and played football uh, and participated in other civic activities. So it was it was. Very, um, very good, very enriching, and um, culturally, I should say, uh, it was is also a very good place to reside because, as I mentioned, we had the Amish to the west, uh, and then we had the um, Sound TSOP, the Sound of Philadelphia, <laughs> to the east. So we got a little bit of both worlds culturally. Oh, okay, very interesting cultural mix there. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I'm just curious about some of the 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 dynamics 
culturally that you face as an African American male in that small town uh, in Coatesville? How difficult was it for you to uh, aspire to some of your goals? And, and what was it like for you as a, a young man uh, in Coatesville uh, looking to broaden your horizons and, and become that person that you dreamed of becoming? What, you know, what was it like for you as a young man? daring to dream. Yes. Well, as a young man, ironically, I mean, I shouldn't say ironically, I had dreams of being involved in law enforcement. Uh, I wanted, I think initially, <clears throat> I had thought of becoming a police officer uh, because, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I think my parents and, and grandparents, they... Uh, like like for many of us, I think they took the the brunt and the major impact of of, of racism and and white supremacy. So in my rearing, I really didn't have to. I, I didn't have um, racism or white supremacy right in my face. Now, of course, it was present, but yeah. I didn't because of their um, accomplishments and sacrifices. Uh, it, it it didn't confront me the way it did them. So I was able to 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 dream and to, as I mentioned, I had thoughts of being a police officer. Um, I first, be, I was a Cub Scout with thoughts of being a Boy Scout and just um, remember being in, in elementary school and being a part of the safety patrol. So a sense of, of, of order and law enforcement, but also fairness was... Um, my makeup, I should say, as as a young man, and um, I know that uh, as as I matriculated through Coatesville um, junior high and, and particularly in high school, uh, I then began to think about um, becoming an attorney. Uh, however, and, and I have to be honest, because um, we talk about obstacles and. And just overcoming, um, I wasn't a very good high school student. Uh, and because of that, um, I did not, and just have to be candid, I just did not spend the time that was needed in order to be the best student that I could be. And mm -hmm. as a result, um, <clears throat> many of the dreams that I had began to, began to fade. And... Um, uh, as I mentioned to you, Lincoln University uh, is not far from my hometown of Coatesville. And as we know, one of the noted famous graduates of Lincoln was Langston Hughes. And one of Mr. Hughes's um, renowned poems or famous poems is Dreams Deferred. And okay, yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yes. Yes, Mr. Hughes, he actually was a classmate of... of um, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall at Lincoln University. Uh, so my dreams were deferred, Dr. Cook, and I just, although I had them, because I did not um, focus at that age, my dreams began to, to sort of fade. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, that happens far too often 
to many of us when we look at the the, the daunting uh, uh, issues. We look at sometimes the odds that are stacked up against us. And I can recall my dreams uh, to be a teacher, to be a therapist, uh, uh, psychologist, when I found myself in an all-white, predominantly white university, it, it did something to my dream, kind of shattered my hopes a little bit because I felt a little intimidated. And right. that that happens, and some of us allow our dreams to wither and allow our dreams to die. But then, you know, God has a way of restoring our hope and causing our dreams to come to fruition. So can you tell us what happened to reawaken your your dreams as a, a young uh, black man who whose dreams uh, were uh, placed aside? Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I and I wanted to, and I'm glad that uh, that I mentioned that, and you shared, you know, your your piece of your story because I wanted to say to your audience, you know, like a play that was Act One. You know that was the that was the comma that was not a period, and so yeah. and so uh, the light came on for me um, in large measures when I came I left Coatesville and I came to Baltimore uh, and I attended Morgan State University um, and it was at Morgan State that the light came on for me uh, and the light came on spiritually it came on uh, academically. Uh, and it came on <clears throat> intellectually, I mean intellectually and, and emotionally. I grew up there. Uh, and it came on because of, 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 of many reasons. I began to um, spiritually become a part of the, um, the Baptist Student Union uh, and its activities there on campus. And so I began to um, examine God's Word um, to apply God's word to my life and see that my life had a purpose, that I was just not here um, and I didn't have to return to the the um, uh, not being the good student that I was in Coatesville, but that God was giving me another chance. Actually, it, it, was, it was a resurrection for me. Um, and so spiritually, um, that was key for me. And I had some mentors, some mentors on campus. The Baptist Student Union director was very influential in my life, a man of integrity, a man of God, who um, took an interest in me and, you know, and all the students are part of the Baptist Student Union, but particularly in me and some others. And I rose from, you know, just attending the Baptist Student Union to becoming uh, the president of the Baptist Student Union and, we would, um, as a part of our activities, um, just go to the dorms on campus and share the word of God, invite other students to the Bible study to be a part of um, our activities, and that included bowling and just going out for pizza, uh, going to visit um, elderly um, nursing nursing homes and just sharing the word of God. So spiritually the light came on me, uh, came on for me academically and intellectually, it came on and that I began to read and study and I was surrounded by other people who were achieving 
who had achieved. Um, and so I now could put my hands on and reach out and touch people who looked like me because although, um, again, I speak glowingly of Coatesville, you know, my school district there was at the time about 75 to 80% white. Um, and although it wasn't hostile, I just did not have the role models that I saw when I came to Baltimore and to Morgan State University and was able to meet African-American PhDs and attorneys and physicians. Um, and so it instilled in me a sense of pride, a sense of, of, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. And also a support network because they said to me, you can do this too. And so spiritually, intellectually, and I think emotionally, um, my mother passed away, um, biological mother, at the age of 15. And so, you know, being away from, this was the first time I was away from home for any sustained period of time, any long period of time. And so I didn't have the family support, direct family support. So I had to grow up emotionally. Um, and we talked about dreams and we talked about, um, um, you know, just some of the, the, the obstacles and the statistics. Well, it's clear that I would have been one of those statistics if it had not been for one family, faith, my faith, my faith and trust in God and his guidance. Secondly, my family, their support, financial, emotional, um, and third, friends. And I include my friends, again, going back to Morgan State, being my classmates and others who were also away from home and who did not have their immediate family there. So we had to lean on each other um, <clears throat> for support and, um, and guidance during, this, um, during these trying times. Let me piggyback on something you just said. You said that the light came on for you. At, yes. at a certain point. For those who are groping in the dark, those who are listening, who feel like it's dark, that you can't see your way out or see your way through, that you have dreams inside and it seems like the light has not come on. You said something very crucial, Mr. Artist. You said that it was there that you began to connect uh, with your faith, people of like mind uh, spiritually so you nurtured your your spiritual self that was one thing you said uh, you talked about uh, family you, you talked about these friends also that you surrounded yourself with who began to tell you who began to encourage you that you can do it and you you saw in them uh, role models of if they can do it I can do it and then you had good family support. Your family was supportive in helping you uh, financially to achieve your goals. So, you know, the, the scripture reminds us in Jeremiah 29 and 11, he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. And that scripture, it comes to life when we begin to move on it, when we begin to trust God and come out of our shells, you know, to move towards the vision and the dreams that God has for us. 
And as we begin to move forward, that's when God will provide the light that we need, you know, to get to uh, our dream, our purpose, and our destiny. So faith and family and friends and God calls all these things to, to interact uh, in your life so that the light could come on and that you would have enough uh, sight, uh, insight, and foresight to move towards your goals. So I think that's a good point for for those who are listening, who are trying to understand, you know, how do I get from, from where I am to where it is I feel God leading me to? You know, where there is a vision, God gives provision. In the scripture I opened up with, without a vision, the people perish. But God, he, he fuels our dreams, you know, and he provides resources for those of us who have vision. So thank you. I, I totally I, I totally agree with you, Dr. Cook. I think that, you know, as I mentioned, the three main ingredients, you know, one being faith, you know, and, and, and I must be honest and say that, you know, the favor of God, because truly, you know, as I said to you, you know, I, I was not a good high school student. And so, you know, me just coming to Baltimore was faith because I, I didn't want to leave because, you know, I was I was afraid. But just just taking that step, just trusting yeah. God and and Hello? taking that step. Can you hear me? Yeah, you were fading in and out. Uh, okay, can you hear me now? Sure what's happening with the audio, so can you repeat? Can you hear me now? Hello? Yeah, I can hear you now. I couldn't hear you earlier. You were fading in and out. Can you repeat that? Yeah, I was just saying, just, you know, I, I mentioned the three main ingredients, faith, family and friends, just the 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 favor of God um and, mm-hmm. and taking that step um of leaving Coatesville and and my mother had passed away, uh but just trusting God that I'm taking you to a place, you know you've never been here before, never been away from home, but trust me. And and to be honest, you know, the favor of God isn't wasn't nothing about my intelligence because I didn't have it. My pedigree, what you know, my family background, no, 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 no. It was the the favor of God, despite you know my weakness and infirmities and 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 just my lack of faith, to be honest. But Him just cradling me was just so so important. And in terms of surrounding yourself with like-minded people who also have a dream, also have a vision. You know, the book of Proverbs, I believe it's chapter 27, the verse says that as iron sharpens iron. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we have to surround ourselves with people and ideas that will encourage us and that that will motivate us. And many of those friends, Dr. Cook, I still maintain till today because we're still like-minded. In fact, I communicated with one of them today about the Supreme Court and uh, what's happening in our land now. So um, I I think that, yes, in terms of going back to your original question about, you know, overcoming dreams as an African-American man, you know, it is is truly the, the faith, the guidance of God and family support as well as the friends who can, um, lift you up and encourage you when we don't even have the 
wherewithal to encourage ourselves is is just so vitally important, vitally important. Favor, amen. I, I totally agree with that as well, Mr. Artist, because, you know, there are things that we of ourselves don't have the strength, don't have the knowledge, don't have the money, don't have the influence to obtain. But when God's hand is upon you, when he grants favor, he'll open doors that you never thought would be open. He can cause you to shatter uh, glass ceilings. You know, he can cause you to be the head and not the tail, cause you to make history instead of reading about history when you never thought that you'd be in a place to make history. So I want you to just tell us a little bit about this uh, case that made history for you in your role as the Assistant General Counsel with the Commission on Civil Rights for the State of Maryland, God actually put you in a place to make history. Can you tell us about that particular case and and how you were able to be the one to uh, present this case to uh, the Court of Appeals? Yes. Um, um, let, let me say before I mention the case that, you know, you mentioned earlier, Dr. Cook, about mentors. And one of my mentors early on, going back to high school, was my track coach. Uh, and what he instilled and taught me was that there's no replacement for hard work. Uh, and, um, you know, he he let us know, his 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 athletes, that if you work hard, it will pay dividends. And mm. so, and I say that now because... You know, uh, he's now close to 80 years of age, and he was just elected to the state legislature in Pennsylvania. So he's continuing that hard work ethic. And that's what led to, um, again, with the favor of God and the blessings of God, um, me arguing and winning the case of the Board of Directors Cameron Grove versus uh, the State of Maryland Commission on Human Relations. This case... Uh, grew out of Prince George's County, Maryland. Um, It involved two disabled residents of a condominium association. And they um, wanted a key. They live in a nice, sprawling condominium complex down there. Um, And they wanted a key to the, uh, for lack of a better word, the clubhouse on campus. I mean, Mm -hmm. the clubhouse contained um, swimming pool, movie theater, um, just gorgeous place. Uh, and they, it would, if they had a key to the side door of their building, it would just make it easier because of their disabilities to get to the clubhouse. Well, they asked the board of directors, and the board of directors said no, basically. And so they filed a complaint, um, and the complaint dealt with saying that you are violating my fair housing rights because I have a right to a reasonable accommodation um, in, in which I can use and enjoy my, my property. In other words, by having a key, it makes it easier for me to get to the clubhouse, which in turn allows me to use and enjoy my... And so mm-hmm. the board of directors said no. We said yes, they should be able to have a key under the law. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Cook, this case was eight years in the making. We started at the administrative level, and we ended up at Merlin's highest court, which is the Court of Appeals. And what the Hmm. Court of Appeals said was, yes, these two residents, because of their disability, 
they should be able to have a key to the side door. And not only that, but the burden is on the um, um, board of directors to show why it's unreasonable. In other words, when the disabled person asks for an accommodation, the defendant, whether if it's a you know a condominium association or the person who is, who is defending their position, has to show why it's unreasonable or why they should not have to abide by what the law says. So that was the new law in Maryland. Prior to that, there was no law which laid out or spelled out or outlined who had the burden of showing why it's unreasonable. And now in Maryland, the board of directors uh, or any housing provider has the burden to show why it's unreasonable. In other words, why do I have to show that I'm saying no to this disabled person? So that was the new law in Maryland. So it was a fair housing case, um, and the damages were that the um, the complainants, the two disabled persons, were awarded approximately uh, about $70,000, um, and they now have a key, and they now can enjoy their uh, their condominium just like the other residents, and that's the point. The point is not to wow. give them an unfair advantage. The point is that they should be able to enjoy their condominium just like someone who is not disabled. Wow. So that, that goes to show us that in the 21st century, there is still discrimination. There is still, you know, un, unfairness as it relates to allowing accommodation <clears throat> that to me seems reasonable. So Absolutely. Yes. Therefore, still the need for civil rights advocacy, you know, and you being a civil rights attorney, you know, there's still, like I said in my opening, we've made some gains, but there's still ground left to cover. And in this particular case, you demonstrated that we still need uh, attorneys and advocates to advocate for our rights even today. Oh, yes. Dr. Cook, and I think that even in the context of fair housing, you know, as you know, um, many of our our country has been involved in for far too long, many argue, in two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, many of our veterans, as a result of war injuries, are coming back disabled. Uh, and they mm-hmm. are in need of of reasonable accommodations in housing whether it's a support animal, whether it's um, the need for a landlord to make adjustments in their uh, complex to make it easier easier for them to use and enjoy their dwelling, whatever the case may be, we're seeing more and more of our veterans, uh, whether it's, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, we're seeing more and more of them who are in need of fair housing. And unfortunately, um, some of them are told no by the housing provider, and that's where my particular agency um, advocates for their rights under the law. Wow. That's awesome. Thank God for uh, attorneys and those who continue to advocate for our rights. But I also see, uh, Mr. Artis, that you 
you were a staff attorney with the Maryland Disability Law Center. And in my work as a mental health professional, um, I see a lot of clients who have been discriminated against based on their diagnosis or uh, based on a disability, uh, mental disability. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, Maryland, the disability laws and, and what you were able to do uh, when you were an attorney with the Maryland Disability Law Center? Yes, I'm, I'm very um, I'm very proud of my work there um, with the Maryland Disability Law Center. You know, Dr. Cook, I, I have to say that oftentimes when it comes to mental disabilities, I think um, many of the general public think that because they can't see the disability, you know, the person isn't blind or the person is not an amputee, somehow or another, because when it, it involving mental disabilities, because we can't physically see it, then we often do not give it the attention um, mm-hmm. and understand that it, it's just can be just as significant. And so we, we oftentimes dismiss it, and we oftentimes, um, frankly, do not um, consider those persons to be like every every everyone else um in, in, in terms of meeting the protections of, of our laws. So my duty, my responsibility at the Maryland Disability Law Center, I was a staff attorney in the mental health division <clears throat> and my job was to um my clients were the individuals who resided at the three or four major psychiatric institutions um here in the state of Maryland. And my job primarily was to protect them from any abuse or neglect that may or may not have been, um, um, may or may not have existed at the facility. So they would call me and uh, report to me um, if and when they had an issue there at the uh, at the facility, and I would interview them just like I would any other client, and take that information and go visit them. Um, and pursue the case on their behalf. And I, I tell you, Dr. Cook, some of my most most rewarding work as an attorney was for the Maryland Disability Law Center. And, and I, I, you know, from just the um, and, and what I find is that mental health issues are on a continuum. I mean, I had clients who would be able to sit across on the table from me and articulate, you know, much better than me at times. And then there were some who just due to the medication oftentimes were not able to verbally uh, as, as, as much express their concerns, but still I was able to uh, obtain information in order to advocate for them. So we were able to uh, go into the facility and bring to the attention of administration certain policies or procedures that just were not in the best interest of my particular client or even systemic issues that needed mm-hmm. to be that needed to be addressed. Um, mm-hmm. For example, if a person was put in restraints for too long, we would do an investigation, one, to see, you know, what was the cause of the restraint, how long was the how long was the restraint in process? 
and most importantly, how can we prevent it from happening the next time? Because there are certain laws against how long you can leave a person in restraints or any type of seclusion um, in order to bring about the best results. Um, so those were just some of the issues that we dealt with um, as a part of my work at the Maryland Disability Law Center. We'd also monitor reports uh, of any, because it, the, the, the facility has a duty to report any types of uh, violations or accidents or incidents, and we would monitor those reports to make sure that our clients' um, um, civil rights were not being violated there uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the hospital. Wow. That's that's really awesome and, and really significant work. Uh, you know, having been in the field for uh, 25 years, uh, I've seen a lot. I've seen clients who have been uh, taken advantage of, whether it's through uh, at the individual level with individual clinicians or at the uh, the larger institutional level. Uh, so I've seen so many uh, disparities and, and stigma and people not informed of their rights and therefore having rights violated. So I really thank you for uh, sharing your experiences with us as it relates to uh, your work advocating for those with uh, mental uh, health disabilities. And before we close out, I just want to have you to share with us those who are listening who might not be able to navigate their way through the justice system if if there is a sense that your rights have been violated, uh, whether there's housing discrimination or educationally or you believe that you need to seek legal counsel. Uh, you know, how can uh, an individual begin to access uh, representation? I know, you know, there are many levels. There's, you know, the individual attorney, and then maybe, you know, organizationally there might be some ways to access legal counsel. But for the average person who might feel that their rights have been violated, you know, how can they go about seeking a legal counsel? Well, I I, <clears throat> I think the the um, one of the first steps, of course, is to um, in most, despite whether where the person may be, I guess, listening to us, uh, depending on what their their legal concern is, there's oftentimes um, a because my uh, agency is here in Maryland, but across okay. the country, we do have, you know, there is the Legal Aid Bureau, um, mm-hmm. and in Maryland, the Legal Aid Bureau is actually the largest uh, law firm in the state, I don't think many people realize, but Legal Aid Bureaus are across the country, and so they provide um, oftentimes pro bono free um, uh, 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 legal assistance to persons depending on what their legal concern is because it has to be in a certain area. So there is the Legal Aid Bureau. Um, I know here in Maryland, in the Baltimore area, and likely other states have some some um, equivalent, um, something that's equal, is that we have the Maryland Volunteer Lawyers Association. So we mm-hmm. have lawyers 
you take cases for free. Um, and so they can go, uh, if they're listening on their computer, then they have access to the computer. They can just punch in um, whatever state in Maryland. It's the Maryland Volunteer Lawyers Association. Uh, depending on what state they're in, they can um, punch in their state bar association, and the state bar association can give them the local number to their volunteer lawyers association. Um, and then there is the Maryland Commission on Civil Rights, where I'm employed. If you live in Maryland, if you live in other states or uh, in another state, um, you can ask for, again, by calling the State Bar Association, you can find out the name of the <clears throat> Civil Rights uh, Commission or agency in your state. Each state does have one, um, and that would be the agency that um, that is the anti-discrimination um, arm of the state government. So those are just some ways in which they can get the door open in terms of being able to have access um, to an attorney and their local bar association, to be mm-hmm. quite frank, you can give them a call. Um, and they can also refer them to an attorney or try to assist them in terms of um, legal assistance. Yes. Okay. Thank you for, for those resources. And before we close, I want to bring the discussion back to the original uh, topic of uh, daring to make history and overcoming the odds and rising above the statistics. So for those parents of young black men, for those uh, young black men who may be listening, for those who have uh, young black men as relatives, cousins, uh, nephews, and just hearing the odds that are stacked up against us as a people, what can you say to provide some hope to our listeners, to the parents, the the grandparents, the you know uh, those who find themselves working with young uh, black men who might feel stuck, who might not uh, be able to to dream of a a bright future? Um, what what can you say to kind of inspire and to help? us to begin to reach our black men, our youth, so that they might be able to realize their dreams and dare to make history and not sit back on the sidelines and wait for history to happen. I'd like to close with a quote from, um, in terms of history, uh, Mr. Booker T. Washington, who Mm. was the Uh, who attended Hampton University in Virginia and who founded Tuskegee Institute, now University in Tuskegee, Alabama. And he once said, success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life, but by the obstacles which he has overcome while trying to succeed. Mm. And so... The advice, the counsel, what I would say to the parents, the grandparents is never give up on that young man. Mm. Never give up praying. Never Mm. give up hoping. Never give up encouraging. Because I am a living witness Mm. 
I am a living witness to the fact that, as I mentioned, and I had to be candid, that I wasn't a good high school student, that my dreams were deferred. But by my faith in God and by people praying for me, then the light was able to come on. So I, I, I believe that the encouragement, the prayers, the guidance of the parents and grandparents, um, I, am, I am convinced that um, that young man, <clears throat> and making sure that, or doing your best to, to make sure that uh, as best as you can, to to enter them into contests, to take them to the library, which doesn't cost anything, to take them to certain lectures, um, mm-hmm. to surround them with books and people and pastors and mm-hmm. deacons and 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 folks who have overcome, but but who are succeeding. I am convinced that was the way in which the light came on for me, is that I was able to be surrounded um, with people, places, and ideas. And so that instilled in me the hope, that instilled Mm -hmm. in me the dream, that fed the dream even more because of just the, the, the guidance from God and the people that were around me. I am convinced. That is the key. Amen. That's powerful. Never give up on anyone. God did not give up on us. And as the instruments of God, we are not to give up on our loved ones, on our members of our community, members of our faith community, so that we can help them achieve their dreams. That was awesome. That was powerful. Thank you so much, Mr. Artis. And I want to thank those who are are listening. And uh, I see a few calls on the line. And uh, I wanted to just ask if there's anyone who's on the line, if you want to ask a question or if you have a comment, um, I invite you into the, the studio. Hit 1 on your uh, dial pad, on your, your the telephone and you will come into the studio. So have anybody who wants to ask a question or make a comment before we close? Hello? Do I have any comments? Hello? Yes, Pastor Cook? Yes. Hi, this is Brother Keith Coward. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Brother Keith? Thanks I'm for fine. calling in. Oh, and I, I really appreciate um, um you doing the work that you do. I appreciate the gentleman that was there and speaking um, this evening. Um, I would encourage, like I, like I always have, um, the black man in this nation, not just this state but or this city, but the black men in this nation, have got to get to a point where they're they stop being afraid of these young black men because if you don't talk to them, they won't have heard anything from anybody. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of the problem is because nobody really talks to them. They talk about them. Mm. You know, and this is one thing that we have got to stop doing. We have got to stop talking about them and start talking to them. Because they need mentoring. Amen. Good point, Brother Keith. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. It's time for us to talk to them. They're used to being talked at, talked about, but, you know, it's nothing like that interpersonal contact talking to, and that's that's showing respect. And, you know, as I work with young people in general, one of the things that I hear is they don't feel that adults respect them. So I know that, uh, you know, respect is a two-way street, but if we want to be respected, we have to start respecting, you know, our young people as well. So, So thank you for that comment, Brother Keith. God bless you. May You're I say something, Dr. Cook? Sure. Yes, I, I, I agree. I, I think that, you know, I was a mentee, and I've been a mentor for some 10 years now, and my mentee is now a freshman at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And what I have discovered is that I think oftentimes that we as adults, we bring a very judgmental attitude to our young folk. And I think that's what turns them off is that, you know, they're, many of them are tired of being judged all the time and just accepted, you know, for who they are first. And and secondly, you know, we have to build relationships. I mean, you can't go in with just a bunch of rules. And I'm speaking from, you know, experience. You just, on both sides of the fence, you just can't go in with a bunch of rules without there being a relationship. They need to know that, you love them, that you care for them, and that you're going to be there for them. As I said, it's been 10 years now, and I think my mentee and I are just beginning to flow, that we still have our valleys and mountains. But I think those are two things that we have to keep in mind when it comes to, you know, our young people is that, you know, take the, take the what oftentimes wants to be our view of things and our judgmentalism and just listen and accept and let them know that you're there for them. And when it comes time for that advice and counsel, they'll, I believe that they'll be more receptive to hearing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just want to interject. In my work with many young people, they have issues with trust, trusting adults, because they've seen uh, so many adults who have disappointed them, who failed them, you know, who have not been consistently with them. So so many of them will come with mistrust, and they might test your trustworthiness. They, they might have this wall built up to see whether you will stick it out. So we have right. to have thick skin, and we can't be easily offended because many of our young people express their pains in ways that are not politically correct. But if we want to build a relationship, we cannot be easily uh, uh, offended and we, you know, can't uh, be those who are not able to to stick it out through thick and but be consistent and uh, go with the young person through the ups and downs. And that speaks volumes to establishing a relationship. Right. I agree, yes. Amen. 
Okay, so uh, I don't see any more callers who like to speak, so I want to just uh, close out this segment of Totally Whole Blog Talk Radio and thank Mr. Artist for just coming on board and being candid and sharing with us uh, from your expertise and also from your experiences um, as one who was able to overcome odds and rise above the statistics. So as always, um, it is our prayer that you would be whole. Um, God desires that we not just settle with being healed, but he wants us to be whole, nothing missing and nothing broken. So tune in every Monday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. where I'm your host, Dr. Rosemary Cook, and then Dr. Bridget Goings. We alternate every uh, other Monday. She has her show. I call her doctor. I keep calling her doctor, so maybe that's prophetic. But Pastor uh, Bridget Goings Gray, she uh, hosts Totally Whole every other Monday. So God bless you. Go in peace. And remember that God, he has given you dreams and visions, and you can be a history maker as opposed to a history reader. God bless you, and, and good night, and we'll see you next week. Stay tuned for the general promo.
Okay. How uh how was it for you? No, it went great. Yeah. You uh yeah, you responded uh very clearly, very directly and uh you know, people could relate and could understand, so it was great. So did the time go by quicker than you thought? I know. Yep. Uh-huh. Hold on one second. One of my one of my listeners called called. Hold on. Hello. You couldn't hear it. I wonder why. Was it the end or the whole program? This my volume on my Okay. Okay. All right. Um I'm I have a speaker phone and I'm talking right here at it. No, no one told me. They told me that I needed to use a landline, uh, which I'm not. I'm using that instead of the cell. So, oh, you hear on the internet? Okay. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Well, let me call you right back. Huh. Hello. Okay. All right. Well, let me um, let me let me call you right back as I'm trying to uh, respond to some of the some of the people who who couldn't get in online and find out what the issue was 
and I'm gonna make you call right back. All right, call you right back. Hello. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I told you that, and um, I looked at. It, I'm like, wow, it's almost eight o'clock, and I, you know, kind of wanted to um, maybe ask some other questions and give other people time to call in, but time flew, and so I'm like, man, eight o'clock. Wow. Mm mm mm. Yeah, so oh, glad that's done. So, um yeah, I'm gonna go back and listen to it because the person who just called me said that it was some static or something. And I don't know where it came from, but I'm gonna listen and see what was going on on my end or whether it was on their end. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you gonna be up for a, a, a little, a little while. Okay. Let me give you a call back because I'm gonna um just call a couple of people who's, who's sending me some texts about the show. Just kind of respond to some of them. But yeah, that that was great, Terrence. But I'm gonna call you back and we can talk more specifically. All right then. Hey, I'm back. Hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go back and listen in the car and see if the recording picked up on all of that. Sometimes, most of the time, I don't. Yeah, it's the one uh, right after after I go live. It goes to the archives, and you can pull it up and listen uh, from your phone or from your computer at any time. And then I can hear hear what you what you heard uh, to see if it were it was um, loud. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. See, I didn't see uh, some people. I didn't see they were on who were on the line, and then I could see some people because they called in, and some people were listening from the computer. Nope, I didn't see you. 
Because you were listening by a computer. Oh, you came at the end. Okay, so, so at the end, that's when you heard that loud noise. Okay. Yeah, we kind of went over because um, the the person called in, and uh, <coughs> Brother Keith had wanted to call in, and then the other guy. He uh, gave, you know, his comments from his perspective. Okay, so when I started at 7, you didn't hear, so you don't know how clear that was. Oh, okay. Oh, that, okay. Ooh, because I was think, thinking you were saying from the very beginning. Okay, so you were saying at the end. Okay, I got you. From Brother Keith and then the other guy. And then you said it was about no yeah, something was going on with I don't know. Mm. Okay, then good. Well, I'm glad you um at least you got hit. Wow. Mm. Wow. <coughs> okay, well I'm glad that's over. It was a good good show. Yeah. Well, at least you you called in at the end. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad you could call in at the end. At least you um heard some of it. Okay. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, my throat, I'll go give me something to drink, something hot, because my throat. Huh? Is it forty thousand a year? Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, it is. What you mean? Yeah, because I don't, I don't know. No, see, what happens is... <coughs> uh, yeah, so no... Yeah, I was trying to find some money, and, um... Yeah. That's for sure. She can, um, still have some time to apply. She just needs to go ahead because, you know, competition is out there and some people have already applied. So she just needs to get on it and uh, send out some, you know, applications so she can get some scholarships. <coughs> So you got 15 cars out there, you said. Hmm. Hey, I'm going to go get me something hot to drink in my throat. Like <coughs> coming down for cold or something is going on. <coughs>
what? You on the computer? Oh, the budget. You said you did something wrong as far as calculating.
Okay, gosh, it'll be, it'll be done. So, uh, <clears throat> I say, yes, yeah, thank the Lord. You'll be done with that.